Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of constant volcanic activity. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. How you doing, my dear friend? Fantastic, Jason. How I'm are you? I'm glad to hear it, buddy. I'm, I'm doing great as well. Thank you. I, I don't care. I was just asking to be polite. Understandable. Are you an asked to be polite person or do you really care? Like, do you say that to everyone? Hey, how are you? Or do you only say that to like the people at work that you like? Sorry, but works bad example in case someone listens to this from your work. That's okay. How about ra- random other people? Usually, I think, I feel like these days my go-to phrase is, how is it going? Ah, yeah, okay. I like that. You're not directly inquiring about their wellness. But I also like, I appreciate it when people tell me what's really going on, you know? Yeah, I don't like necessarily the, oh, I'm fine, and like, you're really not. Like, yeah. <laughs> something horrible just happened. Yeah. I don't know. When I'm responding to that question, I'll like give some indication of how I'm actually doing, but I kind of tone it down a little bit, you know? Like yeah, if I'm having yeah. a really bad day and somebody asks, how's it going? I say, it's going. Yeah, yeah. It's not going great, but it's going. I use that sometimes. Usually early in the morning. Yeah. Like it's going. I made it here. And I'll kind of have this expression on my face, like the kind of pained expression where you're like, you know, I'm here, but you know. I'm not really excited to be here. Yeah. That kind of thing. Anyway, I'm not sure where we were headed from so, here. So what I, what I use is like, if it's someone I actually care about, I'll kind of tell them the truth or at least the soft truth. But then I always try to like, I don't want them to feel because I feel, is this, we're going to have to mark this explicit now. Can you beep that? Can you beep I'll, that? I'll in beep editing? it. I'll beep it. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll be like, Ah, not great, you know, X thing happened yesterday, but then I'll always kind of BS like, you know, but stuff happens in life. You got to make the most of it. Ha ha ha. Have a good day. You know, like I don't want to leave them like in a down mood, but I didn't lie to them either necessarily. That's that. That's how I roll because nobody asked. All right. But, But I felt like sharing. Sometimes that's important. Yeah. Well, I hope you're sincere about feeling great right now, because I am. I'm excited. I am, too. The topic here is amazing. Tell us, Jason. Tell us. Today, we're talking about the city of Kagoshima. Let's go! It is a beautiful seaside city in southern Kyushu, perhaps most well-known for its active volcano, Sakurajima. It's a very active volcano. It pretty much couldn't be more active unless it was like killing people every day. Right? Yes. And before we get into it, I want to note that this episode was a listener request from Josef in Slovakia. Thank you, Josef. Yeah. Sincerely, thank you, Josef, because this one's great. We talked about Kagoshima briefly in another episode, right? Did we? I'm not even sure if we mentioned this in the Kyushu episode. Didn't we? Maybe we, I don't, I don't, you know I don't what? remember. I it was a while ago. Listen, but I thought we did, because it's a prefecture. It is. So we probably talked about but it. But I don't think we went prefecture by prefecture in that one. Uh, that was one of our earlier Regions episodes, wasn't it? Yeah, that was episode 37 for anybody that wants to go back. Mm-hmm. But uh, Well, if we did talk about it, we didn't do it justice. Definitely. So thank you for making this suggestion, because actually doing a deeper dive on it, I was like, holy crap, this place is incredibly cool, and I 100% want to go there. 
I was so excited learning about this one that there's a very good chance that I go to Sakurajima next time I go to Japan. Totally. Very good chance. Yeah, me too. I mean, you kind of hijacked the uh, the intro that I had planned. <laughs> I'm not blaming you. It was fun. It was a good intro. Um, Great minds think alike, bro. Yeah. I was going to actually bring up the conversation that you and I had a while ago where you asked me randomly when we were hanging out one day, like, so if you had to plan a trip to Japan in five minutes, where would you go? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I said something like, I don't know, spend some time in Tokyo and uh, spend some time on the, uh, the western coast of Honshu or something. But you said Kyushu. And I was going to use that to kind of steer us into, into the Kagoshima topic. But, ah, but anyway, yeah. yeah. Spoiler, Paul wants to go to Kyushu. I do too. And if I go back to Kyushu, I mean, when I go back to Kyushu, let's right. be real. I like that. I'm going to go to Kagoshima. Like, it looks amazing. And before we get too far, I also want to give a shout out to Yosef and his wife, Zuzana. When Yosef originally reached out, actually, he said that they were engaged and he asked for this episode because they actually got to stay in Kagoshima before the pandemic. And uh, he had great things to say about it and it sounded awesome. But then since we decided to do this episode, I reached out and just wanted to check on their marital status to make sure I got it right for their shout out. And they are married. So congratulations, you guys. Congrats. That's awesome. And he sent me a very cute picture of the two of them. Ah, nice. They look like a great couple. You got to show me after this. I will. Okay, so let's go over some basics here. Just get acquainted with our topic. So we've mentioned it's on the island of Kyushu. Kyushu is the southernmost main island of Japan, if you don't count Okinawa as a main island. And Kagoshima is the capital city and the largest city in Kagoshima Prefecture. Which is the southernmost prefecture on the island of Kyushu. Yep. Population's around 600,000 or so. So fairly big city, but not a mega city. And the city is in an interesting location. It's actually sort of in the middle of the prefecture, but it's also on the sea because it's right on the edge of Kagoshima Bay, which is this massive bay that cuts into the southern tip of Kyushu. So it's like you got this big island, but then at the bottom there's this big body of water that cuts into it, and Kagoshima is kind of near the northern tip of that, if that makes sense. Well, not the tip. Yeah. West, northwest side of the bay. About half the prefecture or so is on the east of the bay, and half the prefecture or so is on the west of the bay. Yeah. And I love this bay, Paul. The <laughs> yeah. bay. It's not just a bay. <laughs> What's right in the middle of the bay? There's a volcano. And the reason that bay even exists there is because of these ancient volcanoes that formed tens of thousands of years ago. Which are, I mean, they're still there, really. These, they're underwater volcanoes now, but like their eruptions created this bay because all the water sits in the calderas of these giant volcanoes. And the caldera, if you're not familiar with that term, is kind of the crater at the top of a volcano. So that's what the bay is. It's a couple calderas with another volcano sticking up out of the water. Yeah. How cool is that? It's incredible. So when you're in Kagoshima, from almost anywhere in Kagoshima, you can just look out across the bay and there's a massive volcano just right in the middle of the bay. 
The sights are breathtaking almost no matter where you are. It just seems like such a cool place to be, like waking up in the morning and like opening your window, get some fresh air and look outside and there's a bay with a volcano over it and the volcano's smoking. Like you can't get sick of that almost. Right. It just seems like such a magical place to live. It's nicknamed Naples of the Eastern World Mm -hmm. because of the bay, the hot climate, and the active volcano. Pretty awesome. I've never been to Naples. That sounds like a cool place too, though, if it's got all of those things. So yeah, I focused a lot of my research on this volcano because, I mean, it honestly, it seems like the local culture is kind of defined by this volcano. And how could it not be, you know? It's just omnipresent. As you go about your daily life, there's this volcano right there. And like I said, it's super active. So it's not like you can just ignore it, really. (laughs) Right. It just becomes part of everyday life. The people there sweep up the ash that rains down from the volcano into little bags and leave them in certain areas to be picked up. Because if you just washed all the ash into the gutters, it would clog everything up. And that's just like, ah, daily life in the shadow of a volcano. I'm just sweeping up ash and bagging it. That's normal. Yeah, that kind of stuff is what I found so fascinating. That's like my favorite facts in this episode is just... What is daily life like next to a volcano? And I have you, some I have some specific notes about so to go on a what life is like tangent. Yeah. My grandparents and my mom lived in Washington when Mount St. Helens blew. Really? Yeah. My mom, I think, told me she was out of town and she came back and her car had been parked in like her parents' driveway and it was just covered in like inches and inches of ash Hmm. crazy and they weren't like super close to the volcano but that was a crazy eruption yeah when was that early 80s 81 maybe i think early 80s i mean i remember hearing about that i mean i wasn't alive at that point but it's a famous event my mom had maybe just finished college or something Hmm. crazy yeah So you want to hear my fun facts about the volcano? (laughs) Absolutely. You and your fun facts. Every time you bust out fun facts, I get excited. Aw. I'm glad you like them, Paul. I look for the funnest ones, you know? (laughs) Some facts just aren't that fun, but... I just picture you sifting through all these facts, like, not good enough! Yeah. I watched a lot of videos about this place, because it just, it looks beautiful. I wanted to get all those, like, 4K, you know, walking around Kagoshima... I noticed that too. Everyone with a video camera in Japan goes there because, of course, why wouldn't you, right? Yeah. So I want to see this volcano at night because I saw that residents can actually sometimes see lava leaking out of the volcano. Or you look and you see lightning in the clouds of smoke above the volcano. Have you seen pictures of that where it's like you got a volcano, you got smoke rising up out of it, and then there's kind of fire and lightning? Yes. I always thought that was just like a really lucky photo, you know, like it happens once in a blue moon. And if you're in the right place at the right time, you just get that perfect picture. Apparently, volcanic eruptions actually cause lightning. So that's like a common thing to see above volcanoes, active volcanoes. Anyway. Yeah, yeah as well as active as this one. Isn't that crazy, though? That's one of the most spectacular natural phenomena I can think of. And it's like common to see in Kagoshima. I was watching a video about Kagoshima and this guy was like, 
oh yeah, the, the volcano erupts multiple times per day. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I know. Wait, what? Like sometimes? No, like almost every day it erupts. Like hundreds and hundreds of times per year it erupts. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously not mega eruptions that are like wiping out the city but what that's crazy it is crazy it's almost constantly smoking it's rare to be there a day when it's not smoking right um so i wanted to compare this to mount fuji like if you live in the kanto area mount fuji is a big deal it's beloved by all and people love getting a view of mount fuji right so I feel like Sakurajima almost gets the same kind of reverence that Mount Fuji gets, you know? There's actually a height limit for buildings in Kagoshima, and it's specifically illegal to build anything that would block the view of the volcano. That is great. I did notice that there are very few tall buildings, even like downtown. Mm-hmm. They look like, I don't know, four or five stories, maybe. That's cool. That's great. Yeah, Totally. And so you mentioned how they have to sweep up the ash into bags and leave it on the side of the street, and then a city worker comes and hauls off all that ash. Supposedly, the city uses that ash and like makes it into useful products. Okay. Uh, I don't know exactly. Maybe fertilizer? Yeah. That was my guess. Like volcanic. Like a little bit of ash can be good for crops. You don't want it like too much. It'll kill your crops. But yeah. like I think a little bit can be good for the soil. The craziest thing I found about the ash is that it is not like any ash that you've seen before. Like when I think of ash, I think, okay, you pick up some with your finger and smear it around. It's like, it's just so fine and powdery. It smears onto your finger and like you got to wash your hands to get that off, right? The ash that falls on Kagoshima from the volcano is actually more like sand. They're really big granules. So if you pick up some of that ash off of the ground, and you'll see it everywhere if you visit, you can just hold it in your palm and then dump it out and it just all comes right off your hand because it's so heavy. Wow. I have never like played with volcano ash before. I, <laughs> that I really so cool. want to see what that feels like. Right. So we mentioned Sakurajima erupts pretty much every day, multiple times. The last major eruption you could say was as recent as July 17th, 2022. There's videos of it all over the internet. Yeah. Large rocks were thrown as far as one and a half miles away. Oh, man. And 51 residents were evacuated. And that's not even residents in Kagoshima. They're actually people living on the volcano. Yeah. But I didn't see any reports of damage or casualties. So that's pretty nice. I mean, it erupts like that fairly regularly. And like normally no one gets hurt. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, last fun fact I had is that there are actually forecasts on the news every day telling people what areas are going to get the most ash so that people know, like, oh, I don't want to be drying my clothes outside today because they're just going to get covered in ash. Oh, man. The things you take for granted not living in an active volcanic zone. <laughs> right. Although we did just have a tornado uh, warning the other night. That's our joy living in the plains. I must not have heard about that. That was recent? Yeah, I think uh, it probably passed just south of you here. Was that like just the other night when there was that big storm? Yeah. Okay. Ignorance is bliss, I guess. Yeah, right. (laughs) It got a little, uh, no tornadoes, but it got pretty windy for uh, 20 minutes there. 
So we talked an awful lot about Sakurajiba, the volcano, and it's amazing. But Kagoshima is a pretty cool place that has other things than the volcano to offer too. It's not just the volcano. I want to go there because there's a lot of cool stuff here. And we're not even really going to talk about this in this episode, but it's also a good launching spot for day trips. You can go see some more rural stuff or some nature stuff south on the peninsula, or you can even hop down to some islands south of there. It's a good base for doing anything like that that you might want to do as well. So you could do a couple days here and then a day or two making trips. There's a lot you could do in the area. Well, Paul, shall we get into a brief overview of Kagoshima's history? Brief, he says. The history in this place is unbelievable, dude. There's so much. I know. I wish we could spend a lot more time on it because I was absolutely fascinated by the history of this area. I tried to go so brief, but there's so many different things that all seemed important enough to mention that this might take a few minutes. Yeah. But I'll, I'll try to power through. All right. I wanted to start with the natural history. Okay. There's history kind of of the volcano, I guess. Because I think it's fascinating. I said that Kagoshima Bay was formed by not one, but two volcanoes that basically teamed up in the Pleistocene period to really mess things up. So like I said, the bay is actually sitting in the craters of these ancient volcanoes. The southern end of the bay is in the Ata caldera, which formed about 105,000 years ago. And then the northern end is the Ida caldera, which formed about 22,000 years ago. And I saw that the Ida caldera, the, the northern one, when that erupted, it deposited ash as far north as Hokkaido, Paul. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a long ways. That's the other end of the country. The long way. It's about a thousand miles away. Wow. Yeah. And uh, even today, both of those volcanoes are still active, but they're underwater, you know, and they have much smaller eruptions than the original ones that created the calderas. But I don't know, volcanoes, man, they're just so cool. Okay, so when, when we get to actual people history, first thing I have is around the third century. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, around the third century, there was a government formed around the Kansai region by the Yamato people, uh, the ancient Japanese people, essentially. And at that time, Kagoshima was actually considered a different country. So Kagoshima was populated by the Hayato people. And it seems like around the Nara period, which is around the 700s, the Yamato people, the ancient Japanese people, they kind of pushed south into Hayato territory. And eventually the Hayato culture was assimilated into Yamato culture. Kind of the same thing that happened at the north end of Japan, but, well, I mean, not just in Japan, even that happened all over the world, I guess, right? Yeah. And then I was kind of going to skip to the late 1100s. <laughs> Did you have anything in? No, <laughs> I've got mostly more recent history. Okay. Because a lot of really cool things happened later. Yeah. So in the late 1100s, the Shimazu clan was founded by Shimazu Tadahisa, who was the son of... Minamoto no Yoritomo, the founder of the Kamakura Shogunate. Mm. Maybe you uh, have heard of them. So basically, this Shimazu guy, he was a big deal because he was close with the Shogunate, and the Shogunate ruled Japan between the late 1100s and the early 1300s. 
And the Shimazu clan, their territory was kind of centered around Kagoshima. And the clan ruled the area for a long time. Yes. So when you say more recent history, when are we talking? Mostly Edo period. I was going to start mostly with the Shimazu clan. Okay, before we get to the Edo period, I do have just a couple things that caught my eye in the 1500s. So one is that in 1543, guns were first brought to Japan by the Portuguese. We've mentioned that before. But I didn't realize that that actually happened at Tanigashima, which is an island just off the coast of Kagoshima. It's technically a part of Kagoshima Prefecture. So that was interesting. Yeah. Also, in 1549, our old friend Francis Xavier first came to Japan. Remember him? Yeah. He landed at Kagoshima. Oh. Yeah. This is the guy that brought Christianity to Japan. He brought Christmas to Japan. We also mentioned at one point that he, uh, he scolded the Japanese for bathing too often. Yeah. What a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did see that Kagoshima was a significant center for Christians and Christian activity in Japan until Christianity was banned later on in the Edo period, I believe. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the 1500s, of course, Japan was unified under the Tokugawa shogunate and the Shimazu clan from Kagoshima became subservient to the Tokugawa shogunate, of course, but they still retained a lot of power. Yeah, they were a long ways from the capital, which helps. Mm-hmm. Also, they were a major political center in the area and for the Ryukyu Islands that stretch south from there. They were kind of the contact point between the mainland Japan Islands and all the smaller Ryukyu Islands to the south. Exactly. And they were a busy trading port as well. Yeah, so all this stuff actually made them one of the most powerful feudal domains in the country, and their territory became known as the Satsuma Domain. Yeah, so Satsuma, if you're looking back, it's very interchangeable with Kagoshima. The current Kagoshima Prefecture, I had to look this up because I was getting confused. Basically, the western half of the current Kagoshima Prefecture was the Satsuma Domain back in the day. So a lot of what we're talking about the references kept saying Satsuma. That's what it's talking about. Yeah. So I have a couple notes that I thought, there's just things that I thought were fascinating about this because we've talked so much about how the Tokugawa shogunate maintained control over these other clans yeah. around the country, right? We talked about how there were restrictions placed on the daimyo, the lords, to keep them from gaining too much power. They couldn't have more than one castle per domain. And the daimyo had to travel to Edo, which is now Tokyo, at least once a year. But the Satsuma domain was so powerful and so important that they got to be exceptions to those rules. They didn't have the one castle limit, so they decided to just give castles to all of their local vassals, and they only had to go to Edo once every two years. So they basically ran their domain like a mini shogunate. Yeah. And they were able to retain more power than any other domain. Yeah, they were wealthy, influential, and it probably didn't hurt being further away from the capital as well. Okay, Paul, I got something for you. I thought this was really cool. In 1754, there was something called the Horeki River Incident. What was that? I didn't come across that. Well, so there was this area around Nagoya 
where flooding was a really big issue on a few different rivers, right? So the shogunate, they had to do something about it. And they thought, well, okay, the Satsuma domain, those guys are getting a bit big for their britches. You know, we let them get away with a lot of stuff. They got a lot of power down there. Maybe we should try to rein them in a bit. So let's send them over to fix this flooding problem. Okay. Let them prove themselves, you know, show how powerful they really are. But they knew, the Tokugawa Shogunate knew that it was going to be an incredibly difficult and expensive project. So they basically set up the Satsuma domain to fail. They're like, even if they do succeed, they're going to spend so much money on it. Like it weakens them no matter what happens, you know? That's weak leadership. Uh, I'm going to set up one of my subordinates to fail. I mean, when you feel threatened and you're running the country, I guess you got to find a way to keep everything under control, right? Yeah, if your goal is to desperately cling to power rather than be a real influential leader that leads your people to success. Are you trying to argue that the Tokugawa shogunate was not influential? I mean, they held their power for more than another century. I don't know. I'm just saying they seemed to know what they were doing. Anyway. (laughs) Anyway. So the Satsuma domain did fail, basically, is what happened. And 51 samurai ended up committing seppuku. 33 samurai died of disease. And the one guy that was in charge of the whole project also committed seppuku. Mm. So it was quite an incident. Yeah. And uh, I just thought that was interesting, kind of seeing into those the politics of that time period. Right. It is. It is fascinating. An interesting note in Kagoshima history is that the city was bombarded by the British Royal Navy in 1863 to punish the daimyo of Satsuma. Basically, it all goes back to the murder of a British man named Charles Lennox Richardson, who was murdered on the Tokaido Highway the previous year. Okay, I don't have this in my notes, but I it sounds vaguely familiar. Wasn't he kind of being a jerk? Yeah, we've talked about this before. We have? I, I'm pretty sure we have. Like, it sounded so familiar. Because I think we talked about the Tokaido before, and maybe we yeah. talked about this incident. I can't remember exactly when. But basically, like, the British kind of used it as, like, an excuse to be jerks, and they demanded compensation for his death, which didn't get paid up. They ended up bombarding Kagoshima with their, from their warships. Interesting little note of history. Yeah. Did you know that the Industrial Revolution in Japan is said to have started in Kagoshima? I don't think I knew that. So Kagoshima, or the Satsuma domain, is from where 17 young men broke the Tokugawa ban on foreign travel, and they traveled to England and then the United States and learned about technology, science, engineering. And that's how they first got the idea of trains back to Japan. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there's a statue of these 17 young men outside of a train station in Kagoshima. Cool. This was around like 1865 that they were doing their traveling. Okay. And I probably read a little bit about that. I just found so many interesting things that happened right like around the end of the Edo period. It's like, I want to talk about all of this, but... Oh. The transition from Edo to Meiji. There's so much going Kagoshima on. Kagoshima is like at the center of almost everything. It's crazy. Yeah. Which I suppose 
we should talk about the Satsuma Rebellion. That seemed like the biggest thing. That's what I focused on. This is a huge feature of Japanese history itself. Yeah. Okay, so at the end of the Edo period, this is when the Tokugawa shogunate fell and the emperor was restored to power, right? The shogunate was a military dictatorship and now the emperor is coming back. And there were these three great nobles who were instrumental in establishing the new imperial government. One of these guys was named Saigo Takamori, and he is the one who ended up leading what's called the Satsuma Rebellion, which happened nine years into the Meiji period. Like nine years after this new imperial government was formed, this guy decided things are not going the way I planned. We need to go back and, and rethink this. But, so, sorry to interrupt no, you. Be fine. But one note about Saigo that I thought was interesting that gives a little bit of insight into his character and his mindset is, you know, he was heavily involved in the Meiji Revolution happening, and at first he was heavily involved in the new government. He was a strong proponent of war with Korea. And Japan ended up going into Korea and doing some pretty awful things, honestly, and occupying them for a while, which isn't unusual in world history. But he was so adamant about going in there that he offered to go to Korea, act like such a nasty person that they were forced to kill him, thus giving Japan a reason to start a war with Korea. So he basically offered to go commit an elaborate type of suicide to give them political justification to go invade and subjugate one of their neighbors. Yeah, this whole story is just crazy. You know, the first time I started reading about it, it's like, wait a minute, this guy helped install the imperial government, and then less than 10 years later, he's like, nope, we need to redo all of this. Yeah. Why do you rebel against the government that you helped form? You so know? this whole research got me back into the Meiji Restoration. It is an incredibly fascinating part of Japanese history and hugely important, but it's so complicated. Yeah. Having a revolution like that, there were a lot of people that supported the emperor for a huge variety of different reasons, but once they actually formed a new government, they had to choose a direction to take, and you can't satisfy everybody. So a lot of people were mad at the Tokugawa shogunate for being a little bit more loose with allowing in foreigners towards the end of their reign, even though they had been super strict with it the whole time. But then you had people from the other side being like, we need to modernize. We need to accept the rest of the world. And maybe both of those people supported the emperor thinking, I can get this guy to do what I want. And at the end of the day, somebody's going to be mad. Yeah. So it's super messy and super complicated, but also incredibly fascinating. Definitely. So I have a little bit of notes here about uh, just what Saigo wanted. Yeah, what set Saigo off? So number one, he disagreed with the modernization of Japan. Mm -hmm. He disagreed with the abolition of the samurai class. That seemed to be a huge issue. Yeah. Uh, and he didn't want to open Japan to commerce with the West. He thought that instead of building a, a railway network, the priority should be to modernize the military. It sounds like he believed in a strong military. He wanted samurai around. We don't need to modernize infrastructure, but the military, yeah, we need to modernize that. <laughs> yeah. 
he also had a big problem with corruption that he was seeing in the new government. And why I'll, wouldn't you be? I'll right? give him that. Yeah. New government, I guarantee there's probably a lot of corruption without knowing anything. That's just how it goes. Mm-hmm. Even an established government. Like, come on, let's be real. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, he wanted to invade Korea. So he decided, you know what, Meiji government? I made you. I can destroy you. So he gathered up a bunch of samurai who were technically no longer samurai because the samurai class had been abolished. And he led a rebellion. And it was a really big deal. I mean, there were several rebellions around the country at this time, you know, because they're different factions, have different ideas about how things should go. Yeah. But the Sasuma Rebellion is probably the most famous because it was the last and most serious one. Yeah, it was the last major rebellion of the Meiji rule. So it took place in 1877, and it lasted about eight months, at the end of which Saigo was mortally wounded and committed seppuku before he could be captured. So interestingly enough, Saigo these days is kind of viewed as a local hero. Yeah. He remained loyal to his virtues until his death. Yeah, that's, I suppose that's a really Japanese thing. Yeah. Like, I feel like the Japanese people are maybe willing to forgive you for being wrong or misguided as long as you were serious. He put in effort, and you were that's sincere. for sure. Like, sincerity seems to be so important. Like, even if you do something awful, like, well, he really meant it. And he did what he said he was going to do. And people really seem to respect that. Yeah. I think that he kind of represents traditional values of the samurai class. You know, the idea of like, you have a purpose, you go towards that purpose and don't let anything stop you. Yeah. The Bushido, I'm living by my codes. We have these rules and I follow them. Mm -hmm. There's some, I suppose there's something admirable about that. And the seppuku, rather than being captured, that's a samurai thing. You you could even argue, if you wanted to, whether the Meiji government was good for Japan or not, or whether an imperial system is good or not, or whether the transition to democracy was good or not. So, I mean, there's, I suppose there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Everyone's going to have their own personal views. Yeah. But even the Meiji government itself pardoned him posthumously in 1889. Because people just refused to see him as a villain. And he was an important part of their history. Like you said, he was one of the three great nobles that helped lead the restoration of the emperor in the first place. Mm -hmm. Because, like we mentioned, that domain was so powerful and wealthy at the time and so influential. He was one of the only people that could stand up to the Tokugawa government and actually put up a real fight. Mm -hmm. Oh man, now I'm like going deep in my mind. I'm like, was the Meiji Restoration actually good? Opening up to the rest of the world, like, as an outsider, I guess, I think is kind of good. But then they just, they modernized and had trains and stuff, and that's cool. But I suppose then you got to start burning coal and stuff and destroying the planet. And then they militarized, and then they started wars, and then they conquered people. But now Japan today's kind of a cool place, and that kind of was what led to man, history's weird. Yeah. I feel like recently I've decided that when you zoom out and look at the world as a whole and all these different countries and groups of people and stuff, is there even meaning in saying, Oh, this was a good thing, this was a bad thing? Right. There are good and bad things that come out of everything that yeah, happens. Yeah. Bad things can lead to good things, good things can lead to awful things. It's all just things, Paul. Yeah, and if you look back 
it all just washes out and some people were trying their best some people weren't and yeah the world goes on but history's still really cool we're not even done yet yeah <laughs> with history oh man paul did you see the conspiracy theories about what every time a famous or influential figure dies there's got to be conspiracy theories about their death right oh about saigo <laughs> yeah i yeah i heard that he didn't actually commit seppuku and that it was done to him after he died to honor him in death mm. so nobody would would know that that didn't happen. That's interesting. So either he, everyone agrees that he got shot. He got wounded by a bullet. And then he either committed seppuku or he died of the bullet wound and then they made it look like he committed seppuku. Those aren't the only options. Well, what else did you hear? Some people think that he fled to Russia or maybe... Just maybe he ascended to Mars. What? That's a thing that some people think. <laughs> what? Yeah. Uh, Dude, look at American well, politics. Is it really well, that hard to believe uh, that would, people think that? Would, would, he, would, would he like go into the volcano and it erupted and shut him off into space? I don't have any more details on that conspiracy okay, okay, theory, okay, but okay. ascended to Mars. I like the, that one. The, let's talk about the Russia one because that's like plausible. Okay. I'm going to say unlikely because the government, you said, after he died, like, absolved him of his crimes, right? They pardoned him. Yep. I don't think they would have done that unless they knew he was actually dead. Sure. That's my best guess, but you never know, right? That's a plausible conspiracy theory. And he was too ashamed to ever come back because he didn't, he was known for following his Bushido values and he didn't commit seppuku when he lost. Man. I could see him living his life in shame in Russia until he died. I didn't really think about it that way, but man, can you imagine living like that? Knowing that in your home country, everybody thinks you're just this amazing hero. And you know, deep down in your soul, that you're a fake. Yeah. <laughs> I doubt that's good. I doubt that's likely. I don't want to offend anybody from Kagoshima that looks up to this guy. That's very unlikely. Yeah. We're totally speculating here. Dude, do you know anything about the boys? The Boys? Yeah. It's a show on Amazon. Oh, no. no. I just, my fiance got a like two-week free trial to Amazon Prime, so we had access to their streaming stuff. Nice. I binged that whole show, three seasons, in like a little over a week. Good show. Our listeners that have seen it will know why I'm referencing it, because there's like a hero in there that's really not a hero. He's a, he's a piece of crap. Oh, okay. yeah. Anyway. Well, uh, a we lot should, of heroes that are pieces of crap. We should keep going. We got Yes, we should. History. We should. Okay. Uh, next thing I had was a major eruption in 1914. I got one more thing before that. Okay, go ahead. I had to mention this because I, uh, as much as I hate war, I'm a little bit of like a military history buff. I just find it fascinating for some reason, even though I wish they never happened. But Togo Heihachiro was born in Kagoshima. And he studied naval tactics in England from 1871 to 1878. And he ended up becoming the chief admiral of the Grand Fleet of the Japanese Imperial Navy during the Russo-Japanese War. And he became an absolute legend of military history. He absolutely annihilated the Russian Pacific Fleet. And then the Russians sent their fleet from either like the Black Sea or the Atlantic or something 
over there to reinforce. And he absolutely annihilated that fleet too in just really, really well-planned out battles. He was just great. He became known in Britain as the Nelson of the Orient, (laughs) which is like the highest compliment that the British people ever could have given him. So he is one of the most famous Japanese people outside of Japan in all of history. Wow. Yeah. All right, you ready to hear about this eruption? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In 1914, Sakurajima, that volcano we've been talking about, it erupted, and it was the largest eruption in Japan in the 20th century. Wow, that's saying something, because Japan has a lot of volcanic activity. Mm-hmm. It destroyed villages. It was accompanied by a massive earthquake. Fortunately, there were other earthquakes leading up to the eruption that gave people enough notice to evacuate, but it's estimated that up to 140 people died, and many people died because they tried to swim across the bay to get to Kagoshima to escape the volcano, and this happened in January. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, like, it's not that far. Like, it's maybe swimmable if you're in really good shape and, like, you're ready for it. But when the water's that cold and it's some random time that you weren't prepared, I I bet a lot of them didn't make it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I think about, like, catastrophic eruption of a volcano, 140 people dead, that's seems like it could yeah. be a lot worse, right? There was, yeah, there was relatively little destruction for how, how big the eruption was. Yeah. So I guess let me take this opportunity to say the volcano is not really something to be afraid of. Like if you're thinking about visiting Kagoshima, I mean, even the people that live there, it's not a threat to them really in their daily lives. I mean, it could be. Like they monitor it closely. It's considered a dangerous volcano, but I've heard before that volcanoes are more likely to cause really bad eruptions if they get plugged up. The fact that it like Mm. keeps erupting all the time, I think helps keep it from having like a really huge one that would get all the way over to the city. Yeah. It's constantly releasing pressure. Yeah. Yeah. But even, you know, when big eruptions like this happen, if you're in Kagoshima across the bay from the volcano, you're probably safe. The only people that need to evacuate and stuff are people living on the volcano. And I actually saw a quote of somebody that lived in Kagoshima saying, yeah, those people that live on the volcano, there's something wrong with their heads. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's, that's too close. Yeah. But Kagoshima, you know, he felt comfortable there. Kagoshima was bombed during World War II. Actually, kind of right at the end of the war. June 17th, 1945. Kagoshima was bombed with incendiary and cluster bombs. And unfortunately, visibility wasn't good at the time, so they just bombed everywhere instead of bombing specific targets. So it did a lot of damage. 2,316 people died in those bombings. The justification was that Kagoshima was a naval port and that it was an important endpoint for a lot of railway systems. That's what made it a war target, even though they bombed the whole city. Mm. The same year as the bombing, suicide attack planes actually departed from Kagoshima Prefecture, too. The kamikaze pilots, probably heard of. The American military also occupied the Amami and Tokara Islands, which are just south of Kagoshima. So kind of a lot going on in that area in World War II. All right. 
That's finally the last thing I have for history. Last thing I had was the Sakurajima eruption in 2022, but we already covered that in the ah, intro, so... I, I ruined that for you, sorry. That's okay, no worries. Okay, I said I'd make that quick, that wasn't very quick, but I promise you that was quick for how rich the history is yeah. in Kagoshima. I think it was all interesting, worth mentioning. There's even more interesting stuff that we didn't mention. Yeah, definitely. And just a note... Since we started up the podcast again, I think these episodes are going to start getting longer than they have been in the past, but I'm totally fine with that, and I hope our listeners are too. Uh, if you have an opinion either way, feel free to reach out. More of us can't be bad, right? People were asking for it, so... I, I mean, I suppose there's some point, but I don't think an hour and a half is that point. We're going to go over an hour and a half for this one easily. Well, let us know. Let us know. Yeah. All right, so let's get into some of the stuff you can see and do in Kagoshima, because there's a lot. Yeah, we're like deep into this podcast already. <laughs> we're finally going to talk about the stuff you can see. I wonder how many people start listening to the podcast, and they're just like, is this just a history podcast? Because we spend like half of every episode. Like, when is this history part going to end? When do we get to I don't know if half is fair. In this episode, it might yeah, be. Yeah, the history's not always cool as it is here. True. And don't underestimate how much we're about to talk about all the cool stuff to see in Kagoshima. <laughs> yeah. Actually, let's see. Yeah, we're not halfway through my notes. All right. Well, we'll try to just hit the really cool stuff here, too. Now, let's take our time, Paul. I don't want to miss anything. <laughs> all right. Where, where should we start? Well, I would say you're probably going to arrive by Shinkansen, which is the bullet train. And if you do that, you're going to end up at Kagoshima Chuo Station. So the first thing that caught my eye around that station is the Kagoshima City Museum of the Meiji Restoration. Did you see that, Paul? I did, but <laughs> the first thing that caught my eye was there's a mall right there. At the station? Yeah, with a Ferris wheel on top. Oh, there's a Ferris wheel, okay. <laughs> and it gives a really cool view of the city and the volcano. So if you're like just getting to Kagoshima and you're like, I want to see the views. Go ride the Ferris wheel. You got me, Paul. That is the best first stop. Ferris wheels are always fun because you get that view of the city, but with the volcano, you, you gotta. You gotta get on that Ferris yeah. wheel. All right, so now we've seen it. Now let's go learn about it. All right, yeah. So we talked about all the history, the Meiji Restoration. This is the perfect museum to learn more. The Kagoshima City Museum of the Meiji Restoration. Uh, you just got across the Kotsuki River and it's right there, real close to the station, walkable, no problem. If you're interested in all of the crazy stuff that happened at the end of the Edo period, if you're into the history, this place looks amazing. You can get headphones that have explanations of everything in English or German or Chinese or Korean. So hopefully you speak one of those. I mean, if you're listening to this, you probably your English is probably going to be enough to understand <laughs> what's going on. Uh, yeah. and, and it's supposed to be a really interactive museum, which I think is always fun. One review I saw said, quote, hands down, one of the best and most enjoyable museums I have been to in a while. Oh, man. One of the highlights of the museum is a large diorama of downtown Kagoshima at the beginning of the Showa period, which is like late 1920s. I love those old, like, two-scale models of a city. Like, oh, so cool. Totally. There's also small-scale models of a village 
from the Middle Ages too. So you can like really see what it looked like through the years developing into what you just saw on the Ferris wheel as the modern city. Awesome. So that's the end of the first day because Paul just spent 10 hours in the museum reading everything. I had one more thing in the museum, Paul. Sorry. <laughs> oh, okay, I don't want to okay. hold us up too long. Don't, but no, I don't want to miss this. <laughs> one of the interactive exhibits that you can see, you can actually test your strength against Saigo himself. What? Yeah. He's that dude that we talked about in the history section that led the Satsuma Rebellion. You can push against his hands and like see who's stronger or something <laughs> like that. That's awesome. Yeah. Get a little physical activity in the museum. Where are we going next, Paul? Do you want to go to the park? Shidoyama Park? Yeah. That sounds like a cool park. So this is just a little ways north from that museum. It's a nice mountain park. There's an observation deck where you can get great views of the volcano. And it kind of overlooks the city too, right? Like the city's down there and then the bay and then the volcano. Picturesque, Mm -hmm. beautiful view. And this is also an important historical site because... The last stand of Saigo apparently took place at this park. That's what they say. There's a cave in the park that's now known as Saigo Cave because it's supposed to be where Saigo fought to his death. It's pretty cool. It is. And now I'm thinking back about history again. (laughs) It's kind of fascinating that he was against modernization except for modernization of the military, but his old school samurai group got crushed by a modern army of recruited and trained and modernly armed imperial soldiers. So he got defeated by the same thing that he was fighting against, but also fighting for. Well, he had a point. I mean, that's one thing that you can't really afford to not modernize, you know? But he was mad that they got rid of the privileges for the samurai class, but to modernize, you need an army of the people. That's how all modern industrial nation states do it. It's not just the nobles that fight anymore. We recruit an army of everybody, and we can recruit a massive army and equip them with our factories. We need to stop with the history. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. You got anything else about the park? There's a nice hiking trail that goes through the woods. Ah. Uh, and if your feet are feeling tired, you can stop at the Castle Park Hotel. They have an onsen there, a hot spring bath called Satsuma no Yu. And you can visit it even if you're not staying at the hotel. Nice. Yeah. Where to next, Jason? Well, just east of that area is the Reimeikan, which is a history museum located at the site of Kagoshima Castle. Oh. There's not a castle to see there anymore. It's just ruins. But the museum has more history. If you want to learn more about the Satsuma Rebellion, they also have uh, ancient Japanese arts, like sword making you can learn about. Oh. Yeah. I mean, all the history stuff. A lot of the stuff in Kagoshima is history-based, but that's, I would be all over it. Yeah, absolutely. There's also a statue of Saigo nearby, if you want to check that out. Okay. Well, let's just head a little bit south and go enjoy the Kagoshima City Museum of Art. Okay. Broaden our horizons a little bit. What do they have there? There's a wide variety of artwork. There's both modern and classical, and there's international as well as locally based artists. But 
I was really impressed reading the list of artists that they have worked from at this place. For the international artists, they have Monet, Pissarro, Picasso, Ernst, Dolly. Paul Cezanne. Just like, whoa. Yeah. And then they have all the traditional Japanese art too. And that's a wide variety of art I heard as well. Yep. Goes back to the 16th century. And they have art dedicated to Sakurajima, the volcano. That would be cool to see. I I want to see some volcano art. I would love to see some artist interpretations of that. I need to relax a little bit, Jason. Where should we go? How are you feeling about uh, maybe a garden right about now? Oh, that sounds nice. All right. There's a traditional Japanese landscape garden right on the coast that looks pretty awesome. It's called Senganen. And... We've talked about borrowed scenery before, right? How Japanese gardens, sometimes they'll pull in some element that's outside of the garden and it creates kind of a backdrop, you know, castles you often see or a mountain maybe or something. This one uses Sakurajima, of course, as borrowed scenery. How, How great is that? not? That's so cool. I feel like I've become a bit of a Japanese garden enthusiast over the years like every chance I get to go see one or spend time in one, I want to do it. This seems to me like the ultimate borrowed scenery. Like how can you top an active, massive volcano in the middle of a bay as like your frame for borrowed scenery? Like, come on, this place has to be amazing. Yeah, and I want to go there like, at all times of day, in all seasons, <laughs> yeah. because the volcano always looks different, you know? Most of the time, it's smoking, so that's something. But then imagine seeing that with, like, the lightning in the smoke, or even if there's lava coming down the side, oh, it'd be so cool. Yeah, and, like, seeing that in the fall when the leaves are turning colors, or seeing that in a winter when there's, like, snow on the volcano or whatnot, like... All these different times, I want to see it every single possible way I can see it. Totally. Those lucky locals. Yeah. The garden also has ponds, streams, shrines, and a bamboo grove. Bamboo is always fun. Yeah. Uh, One thing that grabbed my attention that seemed a bit unusual about this garden is that it has a surprising number of flowers. Hmm. You don't see a lot of flowers in Japanese gardens. Uh, They also have multiple varieties of cherry trees. Oh, nice. Including one that blooms as early as the end of January. Interesting. January. I mean, it is a little bit south. You know, it's on the southern tip of the last island, you know. True, but it's also something special about that specific variety. So between that and the other varieties, you can see cherry blossoms there between January through mid-April. Usually you only get like, what, a couple weeks or something? Yeah, That's cool. Yeah. The garden is actually supposed to date back to 1658, and it's part of a villa where the Shimazu family used to live. They're the people that were the the lead family of the Satsuma domain, right? So you can get a tour of the Iso residence while you're there. This residence was also built in 1658 originally, but most of the current building dates back to the 1880s. And it's preserved to look just like it did in the 1890s. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And you can even go inside and have some tea in there while you're looking out over the garden with the volcano in the background. I mean, come on. 
Sold. Right, right? Sold. Yeah. What else is in that area, Paul? You feeling down for another museum? Give me more history, man. There's the Shoko Shuseikan Museum. It's a long stone building that was originally one of Japan's earliest Western-style machinery factories. And now it houses a museum about the Shimazu clan and their early efforts at industrialization. They have a bunch of antiques. They have around 10,000 items, including calligraphy, ceramics, glassware, all sorts of real old stuff that would be really fun to see. You mentioned it was one of the first Western-style machinery factories in Japan. I saw another source that said it was the first factory in Japan. Not sure if machinery factory is like... Maybe that's a... Right. What is your definition of factory? Yeah. Did they ever mass produce tofu in the Edo area or something that could maybe be called a factory? Like, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. But either way, apparently they produced iron for shipbuilding there, also for casting cannons. Important. And you can see remnants of, of that stuff. There are some other structures around in the area besides the actual museum building too. Yeah, and it's free to get in if you've got a ticket for the garden's admission. So it comes with that. So you might as well stop by and learn some more history. Yeah. Paul, should we start heading down to the port? Yeah, let's let's go to the water. Yeah, I want to get to that volcano. But first, do you mind if we stop at the Kagoshima City Aquarium? Yeah, I kind of do. But for, for the sake of this podcast, we can go. Okay. So it's right next to the ferry that brings you out to the volcano. And I don't have a ton to say about it, but they do focus on local marine life. I feel like we talked about a lot of aquariums in Japan that have like specific exhibits of what's around that area. Makes sense. Yeah. So you can see the types of fish from around Kagoshima Prefecture, including those islands down to the south. And the main attraction there is the Kuroshio tank, which is a massive tank with tons of different species. And this caught my attention because that name, Kuroshio, was very familiar because there's another giant tank at the famous Churaumi Aquarium in Okinawa that I visited on my last trip. That tank is also called the Kuroshio Tank. Oh, interesting. And just like the one in Okinawa, this one in Kagoshima also has a whale shark. Yeah, that's just like really hammers home how big these tanks must be. Yeah. <laughs> There's just a whale shark swimming around in there. Yeah. The one in Okinawa has two whale sharks, but oh, wow. who's, who's counting? Wow, right? wow. They have dolphin shows at the aquarium as well, and they actually let the dolphins out into like a little waterway outside from time to time, and they do like jumps and tricks and stuff. I saw that too. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, should we hit up this volcano, Paul? Let's head to the volcano. I'm a curious person. I want to see this volcano up close. Okay. Did we say it's one of the most active volcanoes in Japan, if not the most active? Did you it's s- one of the most active volcanoes in the world. I think we may have mentioned that. Okay. Uh, we said it's often smoking, which is great. Very cool. Minor eruptions are very common, which is also pretty cool. So here's something. Sakurajima was actually an island before yep it's not anymore because there was that big eruption in 1914 which connected the volcano island 
to the Osumi Peninsula on the east side of the bay. Yep. So it's still not connected by land to the Kagoshima side, but it is connected to the other side a little bit. Right. So you could get there by land from the east, but if you're in Kagoshima, that doesn't really make sense because it's much faster to just take the ferry across the bay. Fun fact, Paul, you can actually rent out an entire ferry for parties. Really? How awesome would that be? That's pretty cool. To be going around in the bay with all your buds looking at this volcano. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Also, the ferry runs 24-7. Yep. It's only like, what, like 15 minutes to get across? Like, it's quick. Yeah. And it runs every 15 minutes during the day. And then at night, it's every 30 minutes. I mean, the reason it runs so often is not just for tourism. There are people that take the ferry to get to work every day. Yeah. And I just love the idea of that. Like, imagine what a magical life it must be to take a ferry every day to get to work from your home on a volcano. Okay, now I get why that guy in Kagoshima was calling these guys like a little bit nuts. Okay, if you had like a farm at the base of a volcano or something and you needed to be there, I can like kind of get it, but... You actually work in Kagoshima and you're going to live like in the eruption zone? Like why? Just live in Kagoshima, man. Some people like living on the wild side, you know? Yeah. Or could just be their families always lived there, connected to the land or something. Maybe real estate is cheaper. (laughs) Yeah, I, I would hope so. Although insurance is probably more expensive. Yeah. Oh, sorry. We don't cover volcanic eruptions. Can you imagine having to buy volcano insurance? <laughs> it's crazy that such a thing even exists, but I'm sure yeah. it must, right? It's gotta. Another way you could get to the volcano is by sea kayak. That'd be pretty fun. Oh, that'd be cool. Takes about an hour to paddle out there. Okay. So if you're the real athletic type, you know, you can paddle out there on your kayak, and then once you get there, you can work out your legs by biking around the volcano. Yeah, that would be fun. There is a 39-kilometer loop. That's about 24 miles. It goes all the way around the volcano. There must be tons of amazing views on that Yeah, the whole thing would just be incredible. Yeah. takes about four hours to bike around the whole thing. Okay. So it's it's a day. Kayak out there, bike around it, kayak home. And then go stop at the onsen. Yeah. Rest your weary bones. You'll need it by then. Um, you can hike to the main lookout on Sakurajima. That takes around two hours. And there are other smaller lookouts on the way up to that one. Yeah, there are a bunch of lookout points about three kilometers away because everybody's prohibited from getting within two kilometers of the active craters. Yeah. So there are actually three main peaks on Sakurajima. Yeah. The most active one is the southernmost peak, which is called Minamidake. Minami means south. Uh, So obviously the volcano is kind of the the main attraction, but even around the ferry terminal where you land, there's an onsen there. So maybe you you, uh, kayak across, hit up the onsen, bike around the island, hit up the onsen again, kayak back to Kagoshima, hit up an onsen there. Great. I'm down. (laughs) Uh, they also have free foot baths. I saw that. They looked really cool. Like they were these really long foot baths, a bunch of places. And if you sit looking one way, you get a view of the volcano. And if you sit looking the other way, you get a view of the city across the bay. That's super cool to me. 
We keep hearing about these places in Kyushu where they got these free foot baths. I got to hit up one of those places. So you mentioned hiking trails. One that caught my eye is called Nagisa Lava Trail. It's about three kilometers of trail that's near the water, near the ferry terminal. And it cuts through these lava fields created by the eruption of 1914. So you're like walking parts of these like wooden paths built over a lava field. And there's like grasses starting to sprout up out of the little cracks or whatever in the lava. So you can see how like nature's slowly coming back a hundred years later. That's so cool. It reminds me of when we were uh, in Aokigahara at the base of Mount Fuji and we were walking through this forest and you could see lava flows. Yeah. Like you could see the rock that solidified and it still just looks like flowing lava. And there's all the trees there and you could see all their roots because they like ran a long ways above ground, like trying to find little cracks in the lava to get down. That's maybe eventually what Sakurajima will look like if future eruptions don't wipe it all away. That'd be so cool to see much fresher lava stone or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Another thing that caught my eye is the Kudokami Shrine Gate. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Oh, man. So there's this shrine located on the east edge of the volcano. And like shrines do, it had a stone Tori gate at the entrance. If you don't know what a Tori gate is, look at our logo. That's a Tori gate. And when that big eruption happened in 1914, this gate was almost completely buried in volcanic ash. So now if you visit, all you can see is the very top of that gate sticking up out of the ground. I love that. Yeah, that's so much ash that fell because that gate looks big. Yeah. That got buried deep. Yeah. That'd be so cool to see, to really just like hammer home visually what an eruptive volcano can do to the landscape. Yeah. And there's a middle school right next to that gate. What? Yeah. Can you imagine going to middle school, looking out the window and just having this constant reminder that you're right in the middle of... (laughs) That's wild. The danger zone. That's wild. I was thinking that must be where they send all the kids that they're not that fond of. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'd be sitting there thinking like, oh, it's been a hundred plus years. Uh Uh-oh, it's due again for another big one. All right, we've had our day at the volcano. We biked, we kayaked, we're tired. Let's do some recovery and relaxation the next day. Sounds good to me. What do you recommend, Jason? Let's go to Ibusuki, Paul, because they have some sand baths. These aren't just ordinary sand baths, though, are they? Uh, I mean, what is an ordinary sand bath? That's kind of out of the ordinary already, isn't it? I suppose, but this one's even more special, I would say. How so? Well, all the sand is naturally heated from all the volcanic activity in the area. That's true. I should mention real quick here that this place is not in Kagoshima. It's actually about an hour train ride south from Kagoshima City. Yes. But it's totally worth it. You, you got to go. It seemed to be the most popular outside of the city thing for everybody. Like everybody wanted to go here. You go there, you change into a yukata, you go lie in the sand, they bury you. 
and they put an umbrella over your head so you're not like lying in the sun. I love the little umbrellas, man. Dude, the pictures of this are just hilarious to me. You just see rows of little heads popping up out of the sand (laughs) with these little itty-bitty umbrellas over them. Yeah. It's hilarious, but it looks really relaxing. Yeah, it's supposed to be really hot. They recommend about 10 minutes. You like sweat a lot, you get out, and then... There's like two phases of showering and then a bath and then you shower again. Like you get the whole like cleansing of washing the sand off and cleaning after you do the bath. Mm-hmm. Sounds very relaxing. Yeah. And they claim that the sand baths are three times more effective than an onsen. Oh. What exactly they mean by effective, effective is unclear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is it three times more relaxing? Three uh. times more. I don't know, beneficial for your health or something. But then later, I saw someone say three to four times more effective. So, I don't know, either way, worth checking out. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so we've seen a lot of the cool main places to see in Kagoshima. But there's also some really crazy events that happen in Kagoshima. So let's talk about Matsuri, or festivals. The biggest festival in Kagoshima is called the Ohara Festival. It takes place at the beginning of November. It's actually a relatively new festival. It just started in 1949 to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Kagoshima's municipalization. That's quite the word. Yeah, that was uh, almost tripped up there, but I think I got it out. So I don't know, it looks like a pretty standard traditional festival to me. They have traditional music and dancing, people are wearing traditional clothes. Yeah, thousands of people show up. They have these trams in Kagoshima, and they deck them all out in flowers for the festival. There's these flower trams, like it looks pretty cool. Nice. But standard festival fun, kind of. Yeah. I like weird festivals, though, Paul. Oh, there's a few odd ones here. Good. <laughs> you you want to ease into it, or you want to you want to go like straight? I don't know. I'm conflicted because I there's one that I really want to talk about, but I want to save best for last. Okay. I think. Well, I think I know which one you're talking about. <laughs> I'm less inclined to want to talk about that one. Yeah. But all right. So how about next we talk about the Mayanohama Cosmos Festival? I'm going to need you to tell me about this. That's not in my notes. Oh, this one caught my eye. It's held each year the first Sunday in November in Kagoshima Prefecture. It's a little bit outside the city. But there's fields of colorful flowers, and there's taiko, and there's performances, some of the usual stuff. But what really makes this unique is the fields of flowers feature unique scarecrows made to look like samurai and various characters from Japanese folklore, maybe even a little pop culture in there. Now it sounds familiar. Yeah, and then there's food booths and local produce and all sorts of good stuff. Just sounds like a really fun like half-day type thing if you happen to be there at the time. Sure. Any others you want to talk about before we get to your... Uh... Your craziest of the crazy. Uh, I got a couple before the real crazy one. All right, what did you got next? So I like the umbrella one. Yeah, me too. This is called Sogadon no Kasayaki. 
And it's a festival where they burn a bunch of umbrellas. Like a bunch of umbrellas. <laughs> it's a pile, a serious pile of umbrellas. Like wooden umbrellas. Yeah. Japanese umbrellas. Yeah. Old, yeah. old style umbrellas. Yes. So it's, it's actually based on a legend. There were a couple brothers that used umbrellas as torches when they avenged their father's death. And I looked up this story because I thought, you know, maybe this is a really interesting, fun story that would be fun to read. Yeah. Eh, it's not, it's probably not worth spending the time on all of the details, if you know what I mean. But the short version is, so these two brothers, their father was murdered when they were three and five years old. And the father was murdered by his own cousin, who was a vassal of the shogun, Minamoto no Yoritomo. Mm. We mentioned him in the history section. Yeah. And when they got their revenge, they were only 20 and 22. Okay. So maybe a, sort of a classic tale of like they didn't growing forget. up with this, yeah, this yeah. vendetta. And they got their revenge eventually. So at the festival, they burn a bunch of umbrellas in this massive bonfire. That's yeah. what I'm interested in, a massive bonfire. There's a bunch of guys wearing the traditional loincloth. They kind of dance around it and they chant and they sing and they light it on fire and then they keep throwing more umbrellas on it as it's burning and it's like 30 feet high like it's huge yeah and they do it right after it gets dark so it's like incredible it looks pretty fun they also have traditional performances like taiko drumming karate and a local martial art called jigen ryu yeah and it's like right on the banks of the river and totally free. You can just walk by and find a spot. Awesome. Yeah. So how about a food one? Yes. The Ramen Championship. <sighs> it's held in late February in Kagoshima Waterfront Park every year since 2015. And it hosts nearly 20 different ramen chefs from across the prefecture serving up bowls of ramen for you and your friends to vote on. It's a three-day event. Did you say that? No. Three days. So there's plenty of time to make sure you have you know enough room to try all these different types of ramen. And each bowl is 800 yen. Yep. Yeah, and I've heard come with your friends, and then you can all like taste each other's ramen. That's so you can order a whole bunch of different ones and really get all the flavors. That's perfect. There's a guidebook that comes with you that I think is in Japanese, but it kind of like tells you about each offering and like why it's special or where they're coming from. Very cool. Yeah. Oh man, that reminds me. One of our listeners wrote in recently about a uh, ramen documentary that looked really interesting. He said it was good, and uh, I don't know why I brought it up, because you can't actually see it in the U.S. <laughs> yet. I don't know. Eventually, maybe they'll release it online or something. I'll, I'll update you if, uh, if there's a way to watch it. Okay. So there was only one other festival I made note of. Are you, are you ready? I'm, I'm excited, yes. Are you ready? Let's you ready do it. Let's do it. Hey, go for it. The Kajiki Spider Fighting Festival. Excuse me? Spider Fighting Festival. What? Spider Fighting Festival. Oh. Spiders fight at this festival. Oh. Yeah. What? <laughs> How does it, do How I does need to say happen? it again? How does this happen? Okay, so this happens in mid-June. This is a tradition that dates back over 400 years. Families raise and train spiders 
And there are these, you know, big, scary-looking Japanese spiders, right? We're not talking, like, little friendly, fuzzy spiders. These I've are, seen a couple scary-looking Japanese spiders. I feel like Japan only has scary-looking spiders. <laughs> these ones are actually known as samurai spiders. Oh, <laughs> man. That's great. Uh, so they raise the spiders, and they have them compete in a round-robin-style tournament. And I saw that actually about half of the spider owners are children. I saw that too, yeah. And they're like really comfortable with these spiders. Like they'll let them crawl all over their face and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Brave kids. Get used to it. Yeah. And Paul, I, you know, I didn't think you would really be happy about this, you know. With, I'm not. Yeah. But the good news is they don't fight to the death. They're yeah, up. they just let them bite each other. No harm done, right? I mean, is it, I, I, don't, I don't know, Paul. I don't know. I don't know how much it hurts. I looked up the conditions of victory. Yeah, there are three ways to win, right? Yes. Biting's number one. Whoever bites well, who first wins. I don't know if they're in any specific order. Although after there's, after, I will say after condition of victory is met, they end the fight and they separate the spiders. True. So they are trying to not kill the spiders. I will give them that. It's still wrong. In my humble opinion. No comment. I'm staying out of this one. How else can the spiders win? <laughs> yeah, you're right maybe those spiders desire victory and challenge you know i don't know i just i don't know i'm projecting my own human values on top of the arachnids maybe that's wrong i'm not gonna judge uh, cultural relativity right true absolutely true i'm sure i do awful things that i don't realize are awful i think that's part of being human future generations will look back on me and be like oh i can't believe he was like that and then they'll cancel me. So the second condition for winning this spider... <laughs> uh, a spider can win by wrapping the other spider in a web. I thought that was interesting. I've ne I didn't even know that spiders would wrap other spiders up Imagine in a web. Imagine being a spider getting wrapped up in a web. <laughs> no, this is what I do. How, how is this happening? And the third one is... I thought this was pretty crazy. Apparently, at the beginning of the fight, they drop down on threads... How do they get them to do that? I don't know. But if one spider snips the other spider's thread, that's a win. <laughs> I, I want to know what that looks that's like. That's actually kind of funny. Yeah. Would you be okay with it if that was the only way you could win? If they were just frantically trying to cut each other down off of their thread? No. Okay. But still kind of funny. What if the spiders organized their own tournament? That's, that's fine. All right. Spider self-determination. I'm okay with that. All right, we've we've done the things and we've seen the stuff Let's and eat we've some experiences stuff. to everything. Yeah, food time. What are we going to eat during all this crazy stuff? Well, one food that Kagoshima is famous for is sweet potatoes. It's true, but I feel like we say this for like every other part of Japan. You know, years ago, I remember thinking, oh, Kawagoe, that's the sweet potato place. Yeah. They're all about sweet potatoes, yeah. but a lot of places apparently are all about sweet potatoes. One interesting thing about Kagoshima is the most well-known contribution to alcohol from Kagoshima is alcohol made from sweet potatoes, <laughs> which uh, is emo jochu. I've heard... It's pretty hangover-inducing. It's, it's a little rough, is, is the reviews I've heard. Hmm. But I'm definitely willing to try it. I like sweet potatoes. Why not a sweet potato alcohol, right? Yeah, totally. 
So this is a type of shochu, if you couldn't tell from the name. Emo jochu is, well, emo means potato, and jochu is shochu. So shochu in general can be made from a bunch of different things, rice, barley, buckwheat. But yeah, in Kagoshima it's special because it's made with sweet potatoes. Yeah. And the reason sweet potatoes are so big in Kagoshima is because rice doesn't really grow very well there because of the volcanic environment. But that's great for sweet potatoes, apparently. Yeah. And you'll notice when you're going to a lot of the restaurants in Kagoshima, they're working sweet potato into something. Like, you will see the influence. Might not be in every dish, but there'll probably be some sweet potato offered in some way at these local restaurants. Mm -hmm. Another interesting local specialty I found is something called Shirokuma. Yeah, this one was interesting. I want to try it really bad. Shaved ice mixed with condensed milk syrup and then topped with fresh fruit, dried fruit, honey syrup, and even a couple beans sometimes. Or sweet bean paste. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a type of kakigori, which is the word for shaved ice. You'll find that all over Japan, especially in the summer. Yeah. But yeah, this is kind of a local twist on it. And man, sweet and condensed milk is some tasty stuff. You know, a couple weeks ago, I and your two brothers were at a Obon festival nearby. Yeah, too bad I missed that. Yeah. So I guess have fun. Yeah, it was fun. And I got some kakigori there, and they had the sweetened condensed milk to put on there. So I was like, oh, this is like kind of close to what they do in Kagoshima. Yeah, so that was cool. cool. I don't know. I'm sure it's much better in Kagoshima, though, because it looked like, from the pictures I saw, they used a lot more condensed milk in Kagoshima, yeah. which is good. And, uh, I don't know, the ice at this festival, it was more like pebble ice than like shaved ice, so it was ah, crunchy. Yeah. and You, you gotta get the real shaved yeah. stuff that kind of like melts in your mouth. It felt a little bit lazy. But... I feel like this stuff's really good, too, because reading a little bit about it, it really evolved over time. It just started with like the first restaurant that served shaved ice with condensed milk. And then they added like the syrup and then some toppings. And they kept like adding to it over like decades until it finally became the product it is today. Mm -hmm. So it's really evolved cuisine. Totally. What do you need next? Uh, I want to try some satsumaage, mm. which is basically a deep-fried fish cake. So if you've had fish cake, maybe in ramen, you got those little kind of circles or maybe a flower-shaped little slice of fish cake. They take like fish paste and turn it into this little log and slice it up. Yeah. So this is that, but deep-fried. Sometimes it's also stuffed with a vegetable filling. So I don't know. That sounds good. Can't go wrong deep-frying something that's already pretty good. So we talked about how sweet potatoes grow really well. It's not just them. It seems a lot of root vegetables grow really well. Mm -hmm. Because Kagoshima is home to the largest daikon radishes in the world. Yeah, on Sakurajima. Actually, on the volcano is yeah. where they grow these. I saw pictures of people like holding these things, and they're massive. I know daikons are usually big, but the ones I see that are big are like, kind of long like a foot or maybe a little more long and like kind of wide but these ones are like they're almost spherical and just like 
huge. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, you got daikon for two months there, even if you're eating it every day. I got some numbers, Paul. Oh, let's hear them. A regular Sakurajima daikon radish is around six kilograms, which is about 13 pounds. Wow. But the largest ones can weigh as much as 30 kilograms. What? That's 66 pounds of radish. I can like barely lift that up out of the ground. (laughs) Yeah. How do they even harvest those? Yeah, two people like team lift, toss it in the back of the truck. That's crazy. It is crazy. I like daikon. Yeah, it's good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get someone up there. You should. You can find them served in local restaurants in several forms. Pickled as a side dish, maybe simmered in some broth. With that much daikon, you can do a lot yeah. of stuff with it. It all sounds good. Yeah. Another thing that grows on the volcano is Satsuma oranges. Yeah. And, you know, you can get Satsuma oranges. Oranges all over the world pretty much these days, I think. Maybe you've seen them before. They're like these little, tiny, easily peelable oranges. Mm-hmm. They're a type of mandarin orange, so they're closely related to clementines and tangerines. They originated in Japan over 700 years ago. And you may recall from the history section, we've been using that word, Satsuma, referring to the Satsuma domain. So you might think that this area was named after the orange, but that is incorrect. It's the other way around. The orange was actually named after the Satsuma domain. I've heard they did genetic studies that suggest that they may have actually originated in Satsuma, but maybe not. I feel like our genetic interpretations aren't quite rock solid yet. Still kind of new technology in a way. Well, either but, way, somewhere in Japan, right? Or China. Uh, that's what... Or China, maybe. Uh, it's, it's really hard to tell on stuff like that. Sure. But we're going to say Satsuma, because yeah. that's what's named after. Why not? Another word I want to throw out there is Komikan, which basically just translates to like a little orange. Okay. Mikan, you've heard of Mikan, right? Yeah. Komikan is just a little cute version of it. Okay. Right? So you might actually see something called a Sakurajima Komikan, which is a specific variety that's only grown on Sakurajima. And actually, Joseph that requested this episode, he mentioned seeing these orchards on Sakurajima walking down. He wow. sounded like that was a pretty memorable experience. Wow. Yeah. The last food item I want to mention is Kagoshima Joyu. It's a local type of soy sauce, but the first ingredient is sugar. So it's much sweeter and really kind of changes the flavor profile. It is said to pair well together with white fish sashimi. So you'll see it used sometimes in local sushi places and other local places. So it's just kind of like a sweeter type of soy sauce. And if you want to get some, you pretty much have to go to Kagoshima. Like it's not easy to find other places. Cool. So take advantage and try it out while you're there. Yeah. I wonder if that type of soy sauce has more, like, is there alcohol in it? Does the sugar ferment into alcohol? Oh, I don't know. Or do they add the sugar later? I didn't, like, look that deep into the process. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just throwing out random things that come to mind. I don't know. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. Well, Paul, I think we're at our last section. Should we talk about how to get to and around 
Kagoshima? Yeah. I mean, we've already talked about it a little bit. We mentioned that the Shinkansen goes to Kagoshima. So that's one way to get there from out of town. I also mentioned the trams briefly. There's trams that run through the heart of the city. There are two tram lines, and they both have a flat fee of 160 yen per ride. Not bad. Yeah. Besides the Shinkansen, I wanted to mention, you can also get to Kagoshima with other local trains if you're already in Kyushu, Yeah, you know, in, in the area. And I wanted to mention that there, there are a couple stations that you don't want to mix up. If you're using the Shinkansen, the bullet train, to get to the city, you're going to end up at Kagoshima Chuo Station. But there's another station called Kagoshima Station, mm. and those are very different. Yeah. The Kagoshima Chuo Station is the bigger and more used station. So that's probably where you're going to want to be. Good to know. Yeah. We also mentioned the ferry is a very good way to get to Sakurajima. You can also rent a car and you can bring cars on the ferry for an extra fee. Uh, I saw it recommended that you take a ferry at sunset for the most beautiful view of the volcano. Ooh. Um, and also... There are more ferries to get to the island south of Kagoshima, if you want to check those out. If you're planning on taking trips out there, it's actually faster to fly, like a lot faster. But ferries are also fun, and you'll get a lot of nice views on the trip. So, got a couple options there. Yeah. What I would recommend, what I think I'm going to do when I get to Kagoshima someday, is I'm going to get the travel card. Did you see anything about that? Yeah, that seemed like a good deal. There's a one-day travel card. It's 600 yen, and it's valid for the trams, the city bus, and a sightseeing bus called Kagoshima City View. So this sightseeing bus does a one-hour loop, and you can get on and off at any point. You should know that the guide, like it is a, I mean, a sightseeing bus, it's a guided thing, but the guide only uh, speaks Japanese. But even so, like if you can jump on and off Wherever you want, it's still just an efficient way to get to the main sites. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 600 yen for a whole day of traveling all over the city. Seems Mm -hmm. like a very nice deal. Yeah. Last option I had is that inside the city, you can use taxis. And they're a pretty decent option, apparently, because there are a lot of them and they are reasonably priced. Rates start around $5. Yeah, if you're in the city close to the water... You won't have to go that far between some of these places. Uh, won't cost you too much. Mm-hmm. That's all I got, Jason. Yeah, I think I'm all Kagoshima'd out too. But man, we got to get there. I that know. sounds so know. cool. It does. It sounds absolutely amazing. Yeah. Well, where can people find us online if they want more? Oh, a bunch of places. Probably the best place is our website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. That's where you can see some pretty pictures. You can send us a message. You can donate to the podcast if you would like us to continue making episodes. That would be really helpful. We're also on Instagram where we are at SJP Podcast. Paul, what are we talking about next time? On the next episode, we're going to be discussing dietary restrictions while traveling in Japan. Something I have a little bit of firsthand experience with. You definitely do. I do not, though. But there's a lot more than just veganism to talk about. Yeah. This is actually a, a, a listener request, by the way. And at first I wasn't sure, like, 
because I, I mean, I don't know. I, it's not something that affects my life really. But the more I thought about it, I know a lot of people that have various dietary restrictions. So I thought it would be nice to just give some tips that might help you navigate Japanese cuisine if you can't eat anything that you see. Yeah. I love the listener requests because I think this is a great topic. And, you know, you and I aren't out of ideas yet, but this is something that we maybe never would have thought of or didn't think of doing a whole episode on. Yeah. Uh, We've talked about food and stuff before, but we'll get to talk about lots of different types of diets, but probably also get to talk a little bit about Japanese food culture and philosophy a little bit as well. Totally. So it should be a lot of fun. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. How you doing, my dear friend? Fan. I probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> Dial back a little bit, Paul. You can say freaking if that's... <laughs> I, w- I, I was too slow in the transition to